Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the In The Know Property Podcast. I'm Jack Henderson, founder of Henderson Advocacy, joined again by Daniel Bidal. How are you, sir? I'm very good, my friend. Very good. Mate, um, another week, another another big, big week of property news, property information. Mm. Um, a lot of, lot of scary stuff happening out there, mate. Another interest rate increase Tuesday, half a percent. 50 grand for someone who owns 10 mil in debt like me. How's it feel? Mate, it's nice. I enjoy it. How much uh, How much has that cost you since May? How many interest rates have we had? We had about five. Big ones. It's gone from 0.1% to... 2.35. And they would have been all passed on to the consumer. So my rates would have went up by 2.2%. About 220 grand in repayments. That's yeah. massive. Yeah, it's not that, not that, not that bad when you compare it to the uh, millions of dollars worth of growth <laughs> that's occurred over the last, you know, X amount of years. So. Well, it's and that's right, Jack, and it's an interesting point which leads us into the topic of today's podcast, which is about the opportunities which lay under the under the line, which we'll, we'll touch on at a later date. But let's start with uh, the hottest and the latest news in the current marketplace. Obviously, interest rates have gone up, and then also we'll talk about the uh, the land tax changes in Queensland. Yeah, so obviously interest rates have increased by half a percent. Um, it's like, but you know, people expect it now. I think you know you're still looking at variable owner occupier rates of circa four percent, slightly under, slightly over, depending on the lender you're with, um, and your investment uh, loans. You're probably looking at four and a half to five percent, which is like the reality is it's exactly the same as it was pre-COVID. Like we're mm. at similar levels, right? So it's not like it's a dramatic shift. The only people who wouldn't have felt rates like this are people who have bought uh, like as first home buyers over the last couple of years, right? People who have owned since 2018 or, or, or pre-2018. Um, it's it's standard. And and I think 2.35% as a cash rate is still extremely low mm. overall. It's just a big increase from where we were. Yeah. Hey, uh, I was looking at the data which came out through from a mortgage broker this week on a million dollar loan. Mm-hmm. And if you had from May this year till now, each month your monthly expense would be about 1,229 additional interest expense. And for the month alone, around 200. Uh, for the week alone, for the, you mean? for the month alone. Right. So it's, it's definitely a pinch. So, the the, for, so your yearly interest has gone up by $1,200. 1200, so 1,229. And then for the month alone, 288 That's on okay. a million dollar loan. 280 bucks a month. Yep. Maybe just have one less carton of piss a week and uh, <laughs> don't punt as much and uh, you'll be fine. Mate, the reality is 220 bucks a month. Isn't, you know, it, doesn't, it doesn't matter what money you earn. It's not a lot of money considering it's the biggest asset, the biggest mm. thing that you own, right? Like people spend $220 a week on their car repayments, you know? So get rid of the fancy car and drive a little bomb. Um, and you'd be fine. So look, I, again, I'm not a, I don't think it's that bad. I think it's normal. I don't even really think about it, to be honest. Um, the only reason we think about interest rates is because we talk about property every day. If I, if I wasn't involved in the property industry and I was just a property investor, I wouldn't even know. I get an email or a letter from my lender to say we passed on the interest rate and there are, you know, my direct debit comes out every month from my repayments and it doesn't, because mm. it's, it's such a micro amount that it changes, but you don't really feel it. Um, but another big thing that, you know, has been spoken about for quite some time and it hasn't come into effect as of yet, but it does as of, uh, as of July one next year. And that's the changes to how Queensland calculate their land tax, um, for people who own properties outside of Queensland. So it's going to affect 
a lot of property investors because mm. a lot of property investors have bought into the Queensland market, um, you know, predicting all of this extreme growth. Um, and now, because of the way they're going to calculate land tax, um, you know, the, the, I think those returns that they've potentially been hoping for are going to be dramatically reduced because it's going to increase your land tax bill by three to four times what it was prior to this this new tax exactly right and the way that land tax is calculated for those who aren't aware they base it off the land value alone and the uh anything any land value which exceeds six hundred thousand onwards is when the tax starts to come into play and the way queensland government are now assessing your land value is not just based on the assets you hold in queensland but the aggregate land value of properties you hold whether it be sydney melbourne as well if you own one property in queensland which is a massive hit to investors right be huge like if personally if i owned one property in queensland at a land value of 500 grand you know that would combine all of my land values in new south wales which would be millions and millions and millions of dollars and then tax me on all of that but then i'd only pay the portion of what was mm. you know the queensland amount so hypothetically speaking let's say for rough numbers you had a million dollars worth of taxable land in queensland but in other states you had four million so they'd say you have five million of taxable land value tax you on that so you're going to pay a higher rate because land tax goes up in rates then they would say okay well you've only got a million dollars of that five million in queensland so you'll only pay 25 percent or 20 percent sorry of that portion um yeah, which, you know, if you do the numbers, it's, it's going to increase your land tax bill by three or four times what it was prior, which really eats into one cash flow and two your mm. overall returns. And I think this is, you know, a big reminder as to why we don't invest in property based on external factors that we can't control, like depreciation, for example, like tax benefits, like trying to diversify and save money on land tax. That's why a lot of people go into state is because they want to try save money on land tax or they're trying to time and pick the market. Because all of a sudden now where you've tried to save some money and you've tried to be a little bit creative and you know maybe foregone some, some capital growth to try and save, you know, what do they say? Pinch from penny to pay Steve or some shit, whatever it is. Mm. Um, now all of a sudden those returns are no longer a thing and now you're holding this asset that you know, I think now Queensland's going to take a massive hit with the investors mm. um, and it's probably going to underperform. So again, trying to save a little bit of money has really impacted you being able to make a lot of money. It's a, it's a great point. And I actually got a, a phone call this week from a buddy, an investor in mine, Aaron, who was like, Dan, what, I've, I've bought a property in Queensland, circa a million dollars. What do I do? Do I hold it or do I sell it? What's your, what's your advice to investors who currently hold portfolios in uh, in Queensland? Bear in mind, though, the they have gone and are reviewing this legislation for it to not be passed in and for it to to change. So there is that element of this not holding its weight by the time next year comes. But what is your advice to those who currently hold properties in Queensland? What what should they be doing? If they're good quality properties and it's just you know another line item on your uh, your PL essentially right so it's now all of a sudden that expense tab is going to be a little bit higher um but i think like i was saying it's a good reminder to people to not invest in locations for things that are outside of our control mm. what, what we can do is say well we look at the, the past track record of an asset we know that it's got a really strong track record of growth we know that in the future that growth is likely to continue if not outperform because that location is going to become more scarce the uh you know the the um population sorry is going to increase 
um, which is going to put upward pressure on, on prices. And that's what we really need to be following. And now people, you know, they go, oh, let's go buy this asset because we get depreciation benefits. Or let's buy this asset because we're going to save some money on tax. And we hear it all the time. People come to us for the reason they're investing is to save money mm. on tax or is to, you know, do X or Y. And then all of a sudden some legislation changes, which is we have zero control over them. The, yeah. the simple reason you're investing was it's no longer the reason. So if you own property in Queensland, um, you know, and you're over that taxable threshold, like your friend, if he owns a million dollar property, that's the only property he owns that I think the land tax threshold in Queensland is about 700 grand. So he's probably not going to hit tax on that million dollars, probably only got three or $400,000 of land value. Um, so I wouldn't say sell it. But, you know, for, for I think a lot of other people, it's like, well, you really need to look at that now when you're going to invest in Queensland and go, well, okay, am I buying an asset that's going to really perform or could I put my money in another marketplace and, and have better performance elsewhere? Mm. Once you look at all of the net numbers, and again, this goes back to the positive and cash, negative cash flow thing. You know, I always talk about being a tax outcome, not a strategy. If your strategy was positive cash flow, and all of a sudden you went into Queensland to buy a positive cash flow property because your land tax was at a certain level, you know, net after all your expenses, you had a net positive cash flow. Now you're, ta- you're of that positive cash flow, which was a, you know, I want to go change an investment that was, um, you know, not negative gearing, positive gearing. Now all of a sudden it's, um, it's no longer going to be that way because your land tax bill is three times the amount. So all that cash you were putting back in your pocket is now going to pay for land tax. And now you could mm. be in a negatively cash flowed position, you know? So... Yeah, you really need to look at an asset for its fundamentals and then what are the net numbers? Capital growth, cash flow, minus all expenses, and what are we net left with? That's the number that matters. Mate, that's that's spot on. And I think an important thing to, to clarify with the listeners is what Jack's saying is that we want to be focusing on the core fundamentals first. There are times when we will buy properties for clients that maybe are you know great cash flowing assets, but the fundamentals still the first parameter is let's buy in an area which has those strong fundamentals of capital growth, scarcity, owner-occupier appeal in that location, which will continue to perform steadily over time. And I think um, this is a great example of where we shouldn't just focus on the micro and, and things, you know, trying to speculate change where we should be focusing on the macro and the big picture side of things. So I think that really illustrates why you you know it's so important to have a strategy like jack mentioned which isn't a tax outcome as number one it's the strategies let's build wealth and how do how do we manage that process um so off off the back of that i um you know the topic for today i wanted to, to cover is the opportunities which lay under the line now what i mean by that is over the last 12 24 months whether it be in property or lending a lot of bankers, finance lenders, and also us as buyers and investors have been chasing what we call the more vanilla deals where they're either a clean you know, borrower, it's, it's a standard residential purchase. But what we're seeing now is these types of deals haven't, aren't generating the same returns as what they were you know, 18 or 24 months ago, given the fact that things have changed, which is now creating a gap for the opportunities which may be under that line of what we call a vanilla deal coming to the surface and i think a great example of that is your recent purchase jack uh which i'd love to to kind of get you to walk through with the audience in uh bar beach but um i guess yeah what, what's your thoughts on on now we're transitioning into a marketplace which is exposing a, a you know a different side of creating money where that opportunity for vanilla stuff isn't necessarily there yeah and i think 
the vanilla stuff you're talking about is like a lender has a good income, has good capital growth, like has good yeah. equity in their portfolio, has good serviceability, they go and buy a property. Now, all of a sudden, not a lot of people have serviceability, right? Not a lot of people have available equity. Interest rates are increasing, which means for a bank or for a lender, there isn't going to be as many deals to go around. So, um, you know, you have to start as a, as a borrower and as, a, as the lenders, they, you need to start looking at other deals. So we, um, we bought something on Monday, you know, it was just over $3 million, um, was a, a family home in Bar Beach, like you said, which is a you know, very premium blue chip location in, uh, in the Newcastle marketplace. Uh, this property is one street back from the beach. It doesn't have views. And, you know, I, I don't have the capital available right now to be able to buy that on my own. As I mean, as in, I haven't released enough equity for a deposit, nor have I released the equity to be able to do a build. But what I can do is get the serviceability. I can, I can get the money to be able to borrow and buy the property, but I didn't have the cash on hand to be able to service. So, you know, naturally I know quite a lot of people and, um, you know, I, I looked at this deal. I saw that if we did the work to this house to turn it from a four bedroom home on 600 square meters of land, that's quite average at the moment into a five bed, three bath, double car garage, swimming pool, beautiful family home that's completely finished. You know, we can turn a $3.1 million home into a $6 million home within 12 to 16 months through cdc and and which is a complying development as opposed to going through the da so we don't have a lot of lag time that's a, a really great point you mentioned so what jack's saying is that he's bought a property which has the potential for future growth through development and what he's doing instead of going through council and lodging a da he's been strategic in buying a property which he can do the works to following through cdc which is um you know, a quicker way to fulfill the property. So touch a bit on, on that and the mindset around that. So with the, the, the biggest variable to doing developments is how long the planning and, and the, and the um, you know, the council approval takes. So when you go through council to do a development application or a DA, like which is what most people think you have to do when you buy a block of land and want to do work to it or buy a house and you want to do work to it. Um, you know, so you go through, you get an architect, you get your plans, drawn up you know then you've got to submit those plans to council council usually come back and say we're not happy with x y and z redo them and then there's just all back and forth and you know like i had a da that i just had approved on another property that took 12 months just to get it approved and prior to that it was three or four months to get everything submitted um so you know it's 16 months before you even start and then once it's approved you got to get a construction certificate which will allow you to start work um, and then you've actually still got to start work. So, you know, like it's going to be 18 months, two years before I even start. So if I was trying to make money on that, you've got mm. to think I bought it in a really strong marketplace. Two years later, the market isn't as strong. And all of a sudden your feasibility that you did two years ago is no longer relevant. Um, but with a CDC, essentially what a CDC is, is you're staying within the council re planning regulations, which means, you know, if you've got an FSR, which is a floor space ratio, which means how much internal space you can have on a certain block size, you know, let's just say it's 0.6 to 1, which means you've got 600, square, uh, 600 millimeters of internal space to one square meter of land. You know, on a thousand square meter block, you can have 600 square meters of internal. So if you stay under 600 square meters of internal space, that's one of the ticks you can go through CDC. If you've got the correct setbacks from the boundaries, you know, bang, that's another tick. Hmm. You stay within there, you know, the, the facade and what they want the properties to look like. That's another tick. And essentially, instead of having to go through council, you use a private certifier, which is a, com a, a private company, to go through and approve everything and then allow you to start building. So instead of it taking six to 12 months to get approved, it takes six to 10 weeks to get approved. So, you know, we bought the property on Monday. 
we settle mid-November, which is 12 or 13 weeks or something. What, um, and just, just on that, so that's obviously you've taken an extended settlement. Mm-hmm. What's the mentality behind that? So when we're doing the planning, we don't have any holding costs, right? So I you know, reckon we should be able to start work prior to Christmas. So for the next 12 weeks or next 13 weeks, we'll get everything prepped and, and we will be ready to start building or all but ready to start building, which means when we settle, we've got very little holding costs between when we settle on the property and when we actually start the project. Whereas mm. if I got a six-week settlement, you know, then I'd have another six weeks of holding costs and one, you know, got a two and a half, three million dollar mortgage, it can be quite expensive. Um, so, you, you know, depending on the kind of asset, like if this was a property I need to get DA on, um, then I would have probably tried to get a six month settlement. And a lot of people think that, well, why would a vendor give you a long settlement? There's a lot of vendors that, that will. We get a lot of property, we buy a lot of property for ourselves and for clients with a delayed settlement. Like I bought something for myself last October um, that settled June 20 this year. It was nine, nine months. Nine months, yeah. wow. And the reason for that was because I, um, one, I didn't have the capital at the time to finalize it and I was waiting for another sale of a property to go through. Two, I wanted to get the property up on Airbnb and start getting bookings before I settled on the property so I could do that during that that period. I already had the photos from when it was, um, when it was listed. Um, and it just gives you time with no mm. holding costs. You've got your deposit down, you bought the property and then it gives you time to do the stuff. Um, so back to a CDC. Yeah, so we, we, we'll, we'll settle on the property and then yeah, we'll turn that property into a $6 million home. And because the time frame is much shorter, so we should have that project done ideally within 12 months. You know, our, our, our FISO is done on 16 months. So it's essentially a two-month lead, lead in for planning and approvals, a 12-month build schedule, and then two months for sale. Um, which is 16 months. And they're just, you have less risk because you you know the market can't change that dramatically in 12 sort of months. Particularly now that we've already seen, you know, a, a fair few rate rises. Yeah. So mate, talk, tell us about this is really important and a great topic for us to dive into, which really brings me to the point of the under the line opportunity. So how did you go about structuring the deal when we're now moving from your standard residential property to a, an opportunity where you're, you're bringing in partners it's going to be for a commercial purpose and you're you're really playing into that space in lending what we call a non-coded transaction which is is basically when you no longer sit in the code of regulations from nccp where you're dealing in a residential transaction so you're now playing in in slightly a, a different league so how how does that look from a structuring point of view how did you set up the purchase who's involved and, and the ownerships and so, the funding. Yeah, so I, I always talk of people who follow us probably see on my socials whenever it's like I've hit serviceability caps, I'm always talking about do a joint venture, do a joint venture. Like, you know, I can't spell it out any clearer. Why joint like, venture? It's like, you know, if you don't have what you need, there is someone out there that does have it. So go and find that person and partner with them. Um, so I knew this was a great opportunity. Naturally, people trust me uh, because I fucking do what yeah, I do, yeah. right? So you know, I'm not just a punter going saying, hey, we should buy this property. Um, I know a lot of people. I know a lot of people with a lot of money. And, and This is a great story. Can we tell the story of how you met this your partner? Um, yeah, I'm not going to say who the partner is, but the you know, I've essentially met them by social media, doing podcasts, you know, building a brand. Um and yeah, so like, you know, I share my vision quite a lot around wanting to, you know, have a global organization. Henderson is, is going to not just be a buyer's agency, but it'll be a, a building and developing firm. Um, you know, and, and, and the, I, I'd been talking with this person for quite a while around how it's going to be set up and the structure. And, 
um, you know, as we were putting it all together to start going out there and getting something, this deal had come up and, um, you know, I, I did the numbers on it, did the numbers again. It's kept, keep making, kept making sense. And you know, I essentially didn't actually have the cash. I just bought it myself. I went into a five day cooling off period. So I put down 0.25% deposit of my own money, um, which was eight grand. So at the end of the five days, I can pull out of the deal. I'd lose the eight grand, but you know, I'd buy the deal. Uh, but I, you know, um, yeah, I'd lose that money, but I backed myself and I said, okay, I'm going to put this down and then I'll go speak to my, my partner who I know has the available funds and I'm mm. pretty sure will be interested in this. And if they're not interested in it, then I'm pretty confident that I can make shit work because I've done it before. So I'd go find someone else with the cash. But essentially, you know, the whole the whole game plan, if it wasn't this deal, it's all the other deals is I don't want to use my own money. I'll use someone else's money, right? Like I've got the expertise. I know what to do. I know how to do it. And that's very valuable. That's much more valuable than money because there's a lot of wealthy people in the world, right? Mm. And wealthy people want a return on their money. So, you know, my, my expertise is finding a deal, being able to put it together, having the connections to piece it all together. And um, with this deal, you know, I've got the, the, the funding for the majority of the deal from a bank, but naturally you've got to put cash into a deal. I don't want to put my own cash or put someone else's cash into the deal. Um, they'll get a return on their cash, just like if they were putting it into the share market or something else. And then, uh, you know, they'll have equity in the overall deal. So they'll get a guaranteed return on their cash. Plus then when the project's complete, they'll get, uh, they'll get a, a share of the equity. Um, the property's bought in a unit trust. You know, the, the partners have their equal units or whatever their units in, entitlements are, which is essentially the share of the property that you own. And then, you know, there's a, there's a unit holders agreement, which is essentially like a business plan or, or a business agreement, which is clearly outlines exactly how everything's going to work and, you know, what are the worst case scenarios. Um, and then there's loan documents between, you know, the, the unit trust and the individual on, on who put the cash into the deal. Um, and, you know, I'm essentially 50% equity holder of a property that I put zero cash into. Um, wow. So it's great for me. But then on the flip side of that, you know, <clears throat> it's great for that person because mm. that person never would have had the deal. They would have had to deploy their capital somewhere. Um, and you know, why not deploy it into a deal that makes a lot of sense. And, and just to give people context, let's hypothetically say someone's got a million dollars of cash, right? You need to deploy that mill, but right? having mill, having money in the bank doesn't work. And this is what Warren Buffett talks about all the time. It's actually easier when you have less money to make money <laughs> yeah. than when you have a lot of money yeah. because you know, there's not as many things you can put money into So you get a million dollars. Let's just hypothetically say you put a million dollars into the, into, um, the ASX 200, right? And, and you get a 7% return or 8% or 9% return over the next 10 years compounding, right? Not bad. Your money's doubling every seven or eight years. You know, with a property deal like this, on their million dollars, let's just say their million dollars is tied up in the deal for 12 to 18 months, mm. they'll get 7% on that money as a private lend. So is that the, how much you, the his equity portion? Yeah, let's just say they put a million dollars into the deal. They're cash, yeah. not the funding side, just their cash. They have a million dollars cash into the deal, hypothetically, and they get 7% on that money. So that's 70 grand per annum on that cash. That's a good return, right? Then, because with their million dollars, they also bought themselves an equity share in the deal. So mm. then they get 50% of the upside. And let's just say on that deal, we make a million dollars as well to make the numbers rough. So they get 70 grand, they're guaranteed 7%, plus then they get half a million dollars, 50% of the profit. Which is massive. So, so all of a sudden they've gotten a million dollars into 600,000. So they got $1.6 million return in 12 months. That's 60% ROI on your cash invested, which is impossible to get 
if you're going through anything actually like unless mm. super high risk if you want to get that sort of return yeah. and you know that's the, the money that i just outlined is is how you piece these deals together you need to make you need to be you need to understand how to piece deals together you need to understand what you need to look for you need to understand you know how to do a feasibility you need to you need to have the right people in play and and if you say to someone hey give me a million bucks and i'll give you back a million dollars that you give me in 12 months time plus another 600 i don't know too many people who wouldn't do that um and that's 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 how you have to think right mm. everyone hits a serviceability limit right what harry triggerboff would he hit a serviceability limit one day you know like blackstone you know look you look at blackstone which is one of the biggest um property funds or black rock you know the biggest property owners in the world 10 trillion dollars of assets under management they're not using their money yeah and that and that and that's like pretty much you know why REITs are created right you know we're raising equity to, to be able to continue expanding the portfolio yeah exactly so that's what you have to think and, and like if we take it back to real simple numbers you know you're doing a jv as a you're just a normal bloke you've got two properties or something you're trying to buy your third but you can't piece it together but you've got 300 grand of equity so you've got a 20 percent deposit for a million dollar property mm. but you can't get that funding there's a lot of people out there that can get that funding but they don't have 300,000. so why not put your 300,000 into the deal get them to get the servicing in that deal buy the property in say a trust so you've both got 50 50 ownership have a have a you know a, a, a um, return on the cash that you put into the deal and have a time frame on when you're going to have that cash out of the deal um, and you, you'd never hit a serviceability limit. You know, you have an unlimited amount of servicing. So, um, you know, I think you just got to think a little bit differently uh, because you don't need to work with people. It's, you know, people go, oh, it's easy for you to say because you know rich people. I know a lot of fucking not rich people either that I can still put a deal together with. Yeah, yeah. And the easiest people to do a deal is, you know, your family, your, your parents, brothers, sisters. For sure, like that's the easiest people. If you've got mum and dad who've got an owner-occupier home, got a lot of equity, you're a you know, first home buyer or, or a second home buyer you know, who has servicing but no cash, then say, mum and dad, let's do something together. Let's do a 50-50 ownership. Mum and dad, your parents want to help. Hmm. You, know, you put up the cash, I'll go find the deal. I'll you know, buy the property, put it together. I'll look after it. I'll do the property management side of things. Like, you, know, you make it work. And then that's probably the great person to start with, or you, like you said, your brother or your sister or, you know, a, a close friend. Um, and these things need to be done correctly. You need to have proper agreements in place. You know, what happens if you die? What happens if you come into financial distress and need cash? Like, you know, all these little things need to be, you know, thought about. But there's, there should be no reason for anyone to hit a limit, because the limit is self-imposed. Mm. Right? You put that limit on yourself. Mm, mate, that's that's massive. So just to confirm the uh, the structuring, so you've bought in a, a unit trust, you've got yeah, an equity and, partner. And I think we'll just go on that. Like a lot of people ask me, should we buy in unit? Uh, should we buy in trust? Should I start buying properties in trust? The answer is for the majority of punters, no, you should not buy in trust because all it does is add another layer of complexity and it adds another layer of cost because straight away when you own a property in a unit trust, you get no land tax exemptions. You're paying mm. land tax on $0, $1 of land. Um, you know, it's cost to set it up. I don't know how much it costs to set up a unit trust. My accountant is probably like five or six grand to set up one of them. You know, audit fees. Like it's just, mm. it's complicated, right? And, and if you've got one or two or three properties, you don't need to do it that complex. Um, but I've got a lot of shit happening and a unit trust is a really good way to own a property, 
um, which minimizes risk, which essentially has the property under a, another entity. Um, and it makes it very easy to distribute funds at the end where you want to distribute them to. Mm. Yeah, but that's essentially the structure. So we bought a property, the property's bought on a unit trust, the shareholders inside of that property or the shareholders of that deal own their portion of the units inside of that trust, which owns the property. Um, you know, each person's coming to the transaction with a different thing. So, you know, we'll also do deals where we have builders involved, where the builder will have a share of it. So the builder will come in and they'll do the build at cost. Someone will put in the cash, someone will put the deal together and there's the three. I know a lot of the builders and developers that do that. You know, someone puts up all the cash, someone actually builds a project and someone Pieces. manages it and finds the deal and all the rest of it. Um, the deal maker is the most important person without mm. a doubt. There's plenty of people with money and there's plenty of people who can build properties. The deal maker is the person who has the, who's the, the mastermind behind it all is the most important because without the deal, you've got nothing to build and you've got nothing to sell. Mm. Mate, that's, that's an awesome, awesome case study to share. So I, um, I want to share another purchase we've we've done just recently with Henderson, mm. which will be a great um, another kind of outside the box transaction to give you guys a feel for what's actually achievable if you put your mind to it. Now, this property we purchased in Merriweather, which again, like Jack mentioned, is a ten out of ten affluent, high growth, consistent suburb in Newcastle. And the brief we, we were quite lucky; we had a, a one point eight five million dollar budget. And we were able to source a property which was recently architecturally designed <coughs> that we, we've bought this property and it has an Airbnb rental income of 120000 So if we do the mass, 120000 over $1.85 million is a rough rental yield of 6.4%, which is extremely high, particularly when we're in an area which we would consider blue chip with the fundamentals of the location, owner-occupier appeal, and the scarcity component. Um, so, Jack, tell us tell us a bit about a deal like that. What what, what is your thoughts on, you know, a, a deal like that for the average buyer? Is that achievable if you don't have a budget of one point eight five, or if you've got a budget closer to let's say eight hundred to a million? Can they do a similar type of transaction? Yeah. So the again like. That's why we talk about strategies. There's no one size fits all, right? So mm. what we're talking about here is there was there was two really cool things about this property. One is you couldn't replace it for the price that we bought it for. We paid $1.8 million. The build on that property alone, if you went to a builder to build it because of the elevation and the, the block that it was on, that would have been a, you know, one, three, $1.4 million build easily. And the land was definitely worth more than 400 grand, you know? <laughs> so we, we felt like we picked that up for less than what it would cost you to buy the land and build the property yourself. Plus then you're buying time as well. Then the other thing was our client wanted to make sure that they, you know, had a property that washed its own face and, um, and that they could potentially use themselves, right? So Airbnb made sense, but you can't just go buy any old punter a property and have it as an Airbnb. <laughs> like you can't just go buy a little shack in the middle of suburbia and has because it's not going to perform, right? It's mm. going to be very average, and you know it's probably going to be better to have it as a full time rental. But for this particular asset, it's it's it, it's like a Hollywood Hills house, right? Super unique, like you said. It's in a great suburb. It's close to the beach. It's a house that will do extremely well on Airbnb because it's a destination property. That's the thing you really need to consider when you're doing an Airbnb. Is it a destination property? Can we entertain here huge groups of, of people or families on holidays or you know all of these different things? Is there events that are run in this city and town? 
Um, but it's not a reason to buy a property, right? Because the fundamentals of this property are great. It's in an awesome location. Some of the, you know, capital growth over the last 20 years has probably outperformed any other location in Australia, including Sydney. Um, and it's below replacement cost and, you know, it's a fucking really good looking property. And then the Airbnb piece was just the add-on to that. It was the cream on top. Um, and again, that property will will... You know, on an 80% LVR, let's hypothetically say, so you've got a, um, let's just say a $1.5 million mortgage at 5%. Um, so it's costing you, say, 75000 a year in, in interest to hold that in interest only. And the reason we do interest only, obviously, is because investment debt is tax deductible. So we got 75k of, of interest repayments. Let's say we've got 1% of other costs on that on 1.5 mil. So you've got 15 grand. So you've got $90,000 of, of holding costs. Um, you know, will this property produce more than ninety thousand dollars in income? Absolutely. You know, it's it's probably a six hundred to a thousand dollar a night Airbnb. So let's just say it's eight hundred dollars a night average. Um, let's say do it at a sixty percent occupancy rate. Let's do these numbers now. Sixty percent occupancy. So what's sixty percent of three sixty five? Sixty percent is a low occupancy. Two nineteen. So do two nineteen times eight hundred dollars. One hundred and seventy-five thousand. So that's gross rental income minus twenty percent for Airbnb costs, for management costs, etc. One hundred and forty minus ten percent. Then, well, yeah, say minus another ten percent for one hundred and twenty-six. So that's what your net income's likely to be, right? So you've got one hundred and twenty-six thousand dollars of net income after all expenses. Then you've also, and then you've got what do we say, ninety thousand dollars of of rental income. So then you've got a property of thirty thousand dollar a year income 36. off that property, and that's conservative. That's sixty percent occupancy. So that's saying the property is going to be vacant for forty percent of the year, which is very unlikely. Um, and you get to use the property whenever you want, and you're going to have a really strong capital growth. Like mm. it's a great deal, but it's not a deal that everyone should go and look at, right? And it's not a deal that you can do everywhere and anywhere as well. It's very specific. It's a luxury property in a luxury location. That's a destination. And I, I've, I've got a property very similar. I bought a penthouse in, in the East End in Newcastle. Um, would I have bought this property as a buy and hold asset to put a tenant in? Probably not. No, because I spent $2.6 million on this property. Um, and, you know, it would probably rent for 1200 bucks a week. So what's that? 50, say 70 grand a year or something on 2.6 million. Wouldn't even put a dent in the mortgage. The mortgage cost me nine thousand dollars a month, and uh, and that's not including strata or anything else. But I was like, okay, how's another way I can look at this? It's a penthouse in Newcastle East. It's there's there, how many? Think about in 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 Sydney CBD. You know how many penthouses are there? Very few. Mm. Very a lot of scarcity to a penthouse. You know, uh, Ian Maloof just paid $60 million for Crazy. the ANZ penthouse. So straight away, scarcity, it's penthouse. It's in, the, it's in a super unique building. You know, the, all the windows on the penthouses are in a curved shape. The floor plan's incredible. It's north-facing, uninterrupted views of the harbour and, and the cathedral. It's got double parking. It's in an area, um, I'm not sure if anyone knows the East End at all, but it's in an area that is going to be the hub of Newcastle when it's complete. Um, and the capital growth of that property, I think, you know, that, that's going to be a $5 million penthouse in five years time. Like there's already sales around that are 5 million bucks. So then I was like, okay, well, is this property a destination? Will people come here to spend holidays? Will they come here to enjoy special events and occasions? Could we use it for photography shoots, for example, all these kinds of things. And the answer was yes. So, you know, same thing. I bought that property. What was the average nightly rate? The average nightly rate there is about the same, 800 bucks to $1,000 a night. 
what's the rough occupancy? Let's just say it's only occupied for 50% of the year, which means you know every second night it's vacant. Um, and do the numbers stack up? And yes, they did stack up. You know, for the first two months, it wasn't that great. This property, like it was, had you know, in, in just bookings ad hocly. Now that place is chockers. Like I've got someone out, someone in. It's like a hotel. It never, never stops. Um, so I've got a blue chip asset. It's positively cash flowed. It's you know costing me money out of my pocket. Extremely high growth. And if I want to go and use it myself, I can. So yeah, that's that's the thing about thinking about deals a little bit differently to mm. just. I want to get front positively geared property. I want to get, you know, it's, you know, that's how you have to think. Mate, that's awesome. And then another case study which I wanted to share with everyone today is um, the property we purchased on Denham Street. Uh, the numbers on that one, uh, 1.5 million apartment, mm-hmm. 100 grand spend on a cosmetic renovation. Mm-hmm. The We bought in August. Yeah, oct- October, Oct- November, I think it was last year by the time we would have settled. So, and then refinance, what was it? 1.8, wasn't it? Yeah, 1.8 refinance. So... Um, you know, in a down market. So that, that market's probably off by 10%. Um, yeah, so that was, it was a good buy. You know, we paid one five for it. He spent a hundred on it, in for one six, refired at one eight, you know, within six months. Um, and people go, oh, you spent a hundred grand, you only got 200,000 200, ROI. But it's like, what do you mean? It's like, no, you're getting a hundred percent ROI on your cash invested. Let's mm. hypothetically say it was worth one five. It went up to one six five with ten percent growth, and then it went back down because the marketplace, you know, didn't do didn't do much over the six or so months that he held it. So you spent a hundred, then you've gotten two hundred thousand dollars of growth off the back of that. Then you refinance at eighty percent and pull out that hundred that you put in. So you really put in no money into the deal. Um, yeah, and, and 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 again, you just have to th- you. The, the overarching thing about all three or four of these deals, like the one that we spoke about in Bar Beach, the one that we spoke about in Merriweather, the East End, the Denham Street, Bondi, the, the reason we bought all of these properties is because they were fundamentally strong properties. Hmm. Best locations, best suburbs, owner-occupier appeal. They have a huge amount of scarcity to them. You know, the Denham Street Apartments, 200 metres to Bondi Beach. You could stumble out of toddies and will fall into your bed within eight minutes. <laughs> Block of seven, I believe. Yeah, it it's got parking, um, you know, huge balcony. Like there's, they're the fundamentals that will never change. And then you, you manipulate them to work, right? So how can we make this strong cash flow? How can we generate equity from this deal, et cetera, et cetera? Mm. Mate, that, that's gold. I think um, what I want to do now, that it's... It, I spoke to a, a guy from a quarry this morning and, and it was an interesting conversation because I was speaking about the fact how obviously the cash, cash rate's risen and what the banks are likely to do off the back of that. And he informed me that Macquarie has actually increased their DTI ratio from instead of going off, off six times your multiple, they now increased that to eight times, both for owner-occupiers and investors. Right as well as loosening the credit score for for purchases um which is it which is a good sign for to see that you know banks like macquarie are supporting still australians to buy property um something i wanted to touch on now which is an interesting point and a question we got asked was i've got an owner occupier property it's worth about four sorry i believe it was worth 400 800 800 but mortgage I'm, was 400 mortgage was 400 yeah so so you've got an eight hundred thousand dollar owner occupier property it's in an okay location 
your mortgage is 400 grand and so you've got some available equity in that property. You know, and the person asked, should I go and buy an investment property now or should I upgrade my owner-occupier property? Um, I obviously know this person and, and, and I said, well, what do you reckon your serviceability would be? You know, like, do you think it's going to be strong or you're not? You know, you know, they said, hypothetically, I could probably spend somewhere between four to 500 grand on, on an investment. And I said, okay. And what do you reckon you could spend on the owner-occupier extra? And they could probably spend another three to 400 so probably about $100,000 worth of difference because of the rental income, obviously, if you buy an investment. So I said, look, if you bought a, if you bought a four dollars to $500,000 investment property and kept the owner-occupier, it's probably not going to be a great property at four dollars to $500,000. Um, probably not going to perform that well. And, um, you know, if it's a balanced asset, it's probably going to be slightly eating into your cash flow. It's not, probably not going to be positively geared from the stuff that we would buy. So I said, look, it's still going to be okay. It's better than leaving your equity sitting there doing nothing. But on the flip side of that, if you sold the owner-occupier home, increased your debt from 400 to 700, so you spent another 300, and increased the purchase price from 800 to 1.1, hmm. you're going to go get a better quality owner-occupier home in a solid location, ideally something that has value-add potential through renovation or extension of development down the track. And the growth you're going to see off that property, which is then capital gains tax-free, I strongly believe will well and truly outweigh the investment because any growth you make on the investment if you sell it you pay capital gains tax on so really on an investment you've got to have double the performance from a growth perspective to get the same outcome as you would with an owner occupier so i said because your serviceability isn't that great to buy another investment i probably wouldn't do it right now go and do the owner occupier right now continue to grow continue you know you've got seven hundred thousand of debt you got one one of asset value let's have seven hundred thousand of debt and then let's have a one four or one five asset value because then you you know, you've got you've created all this extra equity, increase your incomes because they're in both in growing careers, and then go back and buy an investment, which is a better quality investment, which is going to perform better over the long term. Hmm. So it's an interesting point. So what you're saying effectively is for those who have limited access to buy an investment property and also own an owner occupier, it doesn't always it's not always the best decision to go and buy an investment property. It's almost never the best decision. Very few people make good money through investing. Very few. Because the idiots buy the, they buy, buy the wrong properties. They try and get rich overnight. Like I say it all the time. Very few people make good money through investing. Where people in Australia make the most amount of money is through owner-occupied properties. That's where most people, most people retire on their owner-occupied home. Mm. They sell it down. Got millions of dollars of unencumbered debt, uh, unencumbered uh, equity, and then they go and invest it, buy something and put it into superannuation. That's where most people retire. So... If, if you never bought one investment property the rest of your life and all you did was continue to upgrade your owner-occupier home into a better suburb, a better house, a better suburb, a better house, you'd do way better than if you invested, you know, most people. Would you say to most people to start investing then? I got a question today from uh, a friend as well who said, based on what we're seeing in the economy, do you still think property is a great investment class? Of course, because you get leverage. Like that's the only reason property is great, is leverage. You're 50 grand, I can turn it into 500 and go buy something. That's powerful. 10% growth on that 500, if it goes from five to 550, you put $50,000 in, you've just 100% ROI on your money. Mm. Can't do that with any other asset class. So property will never, it's not that it's property that it's good. I don't care about the bricks and the windows and all, like it's not, that's not the thing, right? It's the fact that you can, you can put in a 5% of something's value or 10% yeah. of something's value and some institution will give you the other 90% of it. It's crazy. You can't do that with anything else. 
that's the power of property and that's never going to change um and what else can you invest in like i'm not sure if anyone's seen the businesses in the world at the moment but they're not fucking doing that crash lot either you know like <laughs> yeah the economy is is what's is the alternative not Mark? as strong so um yeah property for me will always be the best other than my own personal business um but property will be the the best roi fantastic well mate i think um that that kind of sums up the the, the topics for today i want to jump into a bit of q a mm. based off some of the, the audience's questions um before we jump into the q a we addressed a topic a while back talking about your portfolio how you, you've you've now got about 17 million of assets the debt on 20 million now just 20 million, million after, <laughs> a 20 million dollar portfolio with it what an lvr around 70 percent yeah how does somebody actually benefit you know pay off that debt when you've got 20 million dollars worth of property at a 70 percent lend let's mm. call that 17 million worth of debt how do you go about paying that back if you're only on interest only loans you never pay it back so the whole idea and i think we answered this because the video went very very well on my instagram <laughs> um you never you never pay the debt back you don't ever want to pay the debt back i don't ever want to pay the money you know the bank their money back no way i want to i want to spend all the money that i have on my own stuff let, let the bank you know keep their money there um but the whole idea is 20 million assets 17 million in debt so it'd be 14 14 million in whatever debt. it is 17 make my, my it make bad. it 20 and 20 that's so good <laughs> The whole idea is I know that property values will continue to increase over the time. Like I, that's a guarantee as long as we're on a fiat monetary system and they keep printing these things we call dollars. Like it will grow, it's natural. Um, so if I never paid $1 off and all I did was hold and all I did was make the repayments interest only every week, I know one day that 20 million will be 40 million, but the debt will still be 20 million. Because what people don't understand is the governments print money to make their debt levels seem smaller, right? You think about the, the US government, I don't know how much debt they've got. Let's say they've got $10 trillion of debt, but there's $20 trillion of money in the ecosystem, right? So the debt to their, let's say like the debt to the overall money is say 50%. If they then went and printed another $10 trillion of money and put that 10 trillion into the economy, all of a sudden they got $10 trillion of debt still, but there's 20 trillion or 30 trillion of money in the economy. Mm. So it's relative, right? And it, they, they print down their debt. They keep printing money for the debt to seem smaller. But what that then does is inflate the value of assets because the dollar buys you less. Because every time they put one more dollar into the economy, the current dollars in the economy, you know, have less buying power. So, and that, like that, that's not me making that up. That's just fact, right? Go and Economics. Read, read the book. Um, uh, principles by Ray Dalio or, or you know anything by Warren Buffett or whatever like so all I need to know is that as long as I buy really good quality assets that have a proven track record of performance all I have to do is make sure I make interest only repayments on those properties for say 7 to 14 years and I'm pretty sure they're going to double right and I'm set for life that's, that's the thing so mm. I don't need to pay the debt down. The government does that for me by printing more money and making my debt seem irrelevant to the overall mm. asset value. Paying debt down is a, is a poor person's game. That's what poor people do because they're scared of debt. <laughs> it's true. It's the yeah, system. It is. It's the true. system is created by the rich. For the, rich. People, the system is created to keep poor people poor. So you buy this thing and then spend 30 years of your life making the same repayments mm. every single month to pay this thing off. And then what do you do when you pay it off? 
You go and buy something else and get more debt, right? That's the whole idea. Because one home with no debt doesn't do anything to you. You've got to sell that mm. to get the money out of it, right? So, like, you have to think about the system and how it all works. So, never pay back debt. The debt's the the debt is actually not your problem. The debt is the bank's problem, not yours. Not even your money. Who gives a fuck? You know. <laughs> like, and um, this is this is literally let let me let me paint the worst case scenario for me. Oh shit! I can't make my repayments. Ring ring. Hey guys. Yeah yeah. You know all that money that you lent me that's not actually mine. Yeah, I can't I can't make the repayments. Sorry. All right. See ya. That's your problem. That's that's literally what would happen. They come after you. What are they gonna do? They're gonna put you in jail. They're gonna bankrupt you. That doesn't affect me. It affects them. It's their money. You know, it has zero impact on me. Like that is the worst case scenario. And like I was saying in another episode, the more debt that an individual or a business gets, the more you have the bank in your back pocket. What happened when COVID happened with Qantas? The government bailed Qantas out Mm. because they're such a big employer because they've got so much debt. They've got so much money. If they sink, a lot of things sink with them. You know, you think about the banks in the US, you know, Merrill Lynch, when American Express acquired it, when you think about the GFC and, you know, all these banks, their balance sheets were fucked and they were going into liquidation. Because <laughs> the, the, they, they're so powerful, and they have so much, the government bails them out. So the more that you have and the wealthier you have, the safer you are. Mm. Um, so yeah, essentially that was a long-winded end to say never pay back any of your Never debt. pay back debt. Continue um, to increase your debt levels, but make sure you're not increasing those debt levels by buying McLarens and Rolexes and going on holidays. You increase those debt levels by buying assets that, you know. Grow in value. Yeah. It's a, um, I wanted to touch on the three ways really, you know, you can actually, the exit strategies of property and how you can, I guess, essentially take away some of those profits and earnings and, and mm. live off a portfolio. Because I think, Many people don't understand the reality of, of property investing, how it works, how you actually get value out of you know the deal. Like you touched on before, a lot of people think the cash flow of an asset's what, what where you make your money, but you know if you're adding that cash flow to your net taxable income, half of that's gone straight to the tax man. It's a very small way and, and very bad way to really live off that portfolio. So I wanted to touch on the three prime ways we, we live off property. The first being like Jack mentioned, it goes from 20 million to 40 million. There's an increase in equity there. Mm-hmm. Even if the portfolio's rents, uh, you don't pay off any of the debt, Jack can now cash flow that portfolio. Let's say you have a bad year in business. You've bought this development site in Bar Beach, mm-hmm. you lose a million dollars. How are you going to cash flow that in you know, your portfolio, which is costing you another 250 million in interest a year? 250 million? Instead of uh, 250, yeah. 250 million. <laughs> You know, how, how are someone like yourself meant to cash flow that? Well, you go back to the bank and you can pull out, well, you've already pulled out the equity to service that debt. Mm. Um, so I think that's the first thing people, the biggest misconception is they don't realize that you can use equity, convert it to debt to pay off your debt. Use debt to serve its debt. That's a great thing. <laughs> um, and it's the most effective way, to be honest, to service debt and, 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 and live because it's, it's tax deductible. On cash flow, crazy is you pay tax on that money. One, you pay tax. One is tax deductible. That's right. So debt is a, is an incredible thing once you understand it. Um, so that's one way. The second way would be twenty goes to forty. You sell down a portion of that and pay off the debt to unencumbered assets, or or even better, you go twenty to forty, 
and let's just hypothetically say all of your property then is your let's say you have 10 properties yep. that are all worth four million dollars each and you've got two million dollars of debt on each of those properties what you can do is say hey mr bank manager give me back um two of those properties unencumbered so that i had i had uh, two million dollars of debt on both of those and then transfer both those two million dollars worth of debt onto two other properties so you take the lvrs from one property but down to zero so you take back the the um title deeds and then two other properties go from having two million dollars worth of debt on them to three million dollars three million dollars you know three million dollars and you split that debt then so your lvrs increase another but you've gotten back two properties and you've now they're unencumbered and then you wait for another market cycle and take back some more it's a, it's a great way. Another way as well, any of that increased equity you can use to invest in other asset classes like shares, bonds, annuities uh, that produce cash flow and, and can help pay. Properties cash flow is shit house. <laughs> it is terrible. I'm telling you right now, it is terrible. Compared to business, that's for sure. And compared to like, like the, the, the best thing in retirement is superannuation. Without a doubt in my life, it is a tax-free environment and it's the best place to earn cash flow. You don't pay any tax on it. But then if you look at the cash flow you can earn off a residential property, commercial and industrial mm. is a little bit different, especially when you get to scale. Um, but it's terrible. Like you can, you, I was looking at some, um, I was looking at some, some financials from the past 12 months from, from some, you know, um, some shares um, that my family have. And the, th they had zero growth on the portfolio. Right? Yeah. It was almost negative growth. But the dividends that they share that they paid and the franking credits that they got, which is essentially a tax rebate, was a ten percent yield. So on five hundred thousand dollars invested, they got fifty thousand dollars of cash flow. Wow! How much yield? Seventeen. Ten percent. Ten percent. So on a five hundred thousand dollars of cash invested, you get fifty thousand dollars of cash flow. Now in superannuation, that's fifty thousand dollars tax free of cash flow as well. But there's much better things from a yield perspective that you can invest in. Then, Mate, that's crazy. Then, uh, then property. Then property. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Property that go you buy these cheap properties that yeah, yeah, it's way cash flow and cost you hundreds of thousands of set up. Yeah. So so, and then uh, and then obviously the last piece you know to be able to retire your debt is to just pay the debt off yeah. either through the cash flow from properties through selling down some assets and then just living off the the rental income from from those properties. And that's that's the thing, right? When your property's worth forty million. 2.5% rental yield, if you owned all those properties in Sydney, is a lot of rental income at that level. Yeah, so it's, you know, it's uh, 40 million at 2%, 800 grand, another half of it. So you get about a million dollars a year of rental income. Of rental. Yeah, but that's, that would, that's a huge scale, right? You know, that would definitely cover 20,000, sorry, $20 million worth of debt at what, a 4%, 5% rate? Right? Mate, that's it. There you go. Um, how do you think time-wise? you want to answer a few more questions? Or Mate, let's do it. Yeah, we've got a few minutes. Um, borrowing capacity. This is a great one. This one's gone off as well. This was a question we got in from one of the guys who was like, look, Dan, what do I need to start doing to present myself to the banks to maximize my borrowing capacity? Now, I want to share with you guys the three biggest killers of your serviceability and borrowing capacity. Number one is taking on personal loans, short-term personal loans in your name, such as car loans that have a five or seven year loan term. And the reason why they're such bad things to have in your individual name is because if I buy a 50 grand car, it's I got a five or seven year loan term, my repayments are pretty high. You know, they can be anywhere from $200 per, uh, per week. 
where if I was to get a mortgage, that mortgage is over a 30 or 25 year loan term. So avoid buying, creating debt in your individual name that is for short term liabilities that don't produce income. The second thing is having credit cards or a large credit card limit on the time of applying for a loan. So what you wanna do before you apply for a loan is reduce your credit card limits so that you don't have that there on your, your application. For every $1,000 of, of credit card debt, it has a $10,000 impact on your serviceability. That's so if you've massive. got a $10,000 credit card, that's $100,000 of servicing. Yep. Which is quite Even common, right? if you pay it down to zero every month. Yeah. Yep. Just so having that limit there. Is, that's right, because it's, it's accessible. accessible. You yeah. can use it if you want to. And then the third one, guys, is, is having student loans or debts, for example, HEX debt, TAFE and other debts that are associated with education and growing. So those are probably the three biggest killers that people don't consider. And I wanted to share and pick Jack's brain on this because he's done it quite well as taking on these types of debt, but in a more strategic way. So Jack, you're obviously an advocate for, for driving some pretty cool vehicles. Mm. How have you gone about strategically, you know, you've got a mass, a, a nice, and next card and, and a yes. nice uh, a nice car. How have you gone about acquiring these goods while still being able to build a portfolio? Well, now they're the business's expenses, not Jack Henderson's expenses, right? Which is great. Which yeah. is you know, so super important. So I don't have actually no, it's a lie. I think I have one credit card on my personal name, which is like a really small credit card. But everything is in the business name. So the cars tax write off. You know, I've got Henderson on the branding on the side of my cars, um, and I drive them. All I do is work, so they're always work vehicles. Um, so you know they're, they're, they're tax effective i use the, the like the mercedes gdr i go to drive days and 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 you know it gets me into good groups of people which generates me revenue as well i actually said as an asset not an expense um credit cards are, are really good when you use them properly both for earning points which you can pay for stuff with and then also by being able to take full advantage of an offset account right because with offset with, uh, with mortgages Interest is calculated daily, but then paid in arrears at the end of the month, hence the reason your mortgage payments are monthly. So every day the bank goes, okay, how much interest are we calculating today? Okay, that's what you got to pay. That's your day's worth of interest. And tomorrow the same thing happens and tomorrow the same thing happens. So if you if you get paid your weekly wage that goes into an, your offset account, you know when they calculate that, you've got an extra $2,000. You've got $2,000 less that you're going to be paying on interest for mm. that week. And then the next week, your $2,000 goes in. Then the next week, your $2,000 goes in. And you're not spending any of that money because you're living off a credit card, which means you're saving interest throughout the month. And then at the end of the month, you pay it back. And then you do the same thing. You know, So you can um, you can use a credit card very strategically, which I think is, is, is very smart to do if you have self-control, um, <laughs> which I don't. Um, and uh, the car thing, yeah, like... you. In it, to be honest, you don't want to own cars if you're in your personal name. Like, you ideally want to own those cars in a business. What do you say to the guy that rang up this week? Dan, I've, I've got about 250 grand in a bank. Mm -hmm. I, I'm a real estate agent. I won't say who it is. I've, um, I'm looking to buy about a $70,000 car. I've owned a block of land, which I'm going to develop on this year to finish a house. I reckon spend the 250 on the car. <laughs> what what do i do in this situation he uh would you be buying more property or would you be buying a car yeah i wouldn't be using of... cash to buy a car i'd be using i'd be using the cash to buy a property then use the property to buy the car, car. again use debt to buy the car yeah for sure not cash cash is king what cash needs to be invested into assets use debt to buy shit from assets mm. yeah 
Awesome, man. Um, and then this is a, a question that came in from one of the guys. Jack, for the average Joe Blow, mm -hmm. what base or foundation of properties should I be acquiring before I start exploring the development and, and more complex forms of investing? Or am I fine to start with some of the big boppers? Um, well, it depends on who you are, right? And what you know. Like, I, if I go back to 18 now, I would have had zero fucking idea <laughs> how to buy a property and develop it. Zero. So it would have been a disaster, right? Um, you know, and it's only now that I, I still have a basic understanding in comparison to a lot of people of developing and, and opportunity. So, you know, I think people, yeah, you shouldn't go into that stuff unless one, you're super... You know, you shouldn't go into it to make money, just singly to make money, because that's when you're going to make mistakes. I love property and developing. Like, I fucking love it. So even though I didn't make money on it, it's super exciting for me. Um, and it just happens to be that you can make a lot of money doing it. Where a lot of people go into developing just to make money. Mm. And that's when you can go really wrong, right? Because you don't really care about the like the properties themselves. Or the process. Yeah, you just, it's easy, it's easy to... Um, to lose cash. And, and the same with, just like I was saying, a lot of investors don't make money, a lot of developers do their ass. Mate. You know, they over, over exaggerate what the sale price is going to be. They underestimate what the build costs are going to be. They under underestimate how long it's going to take. And you know, that you can, you can lose a lot of money. So again, the way they make the most amount of money in real estate is generally buying good quality assets, holding them for the long term, and just continuing to rinse and repeat that process for the next 20 to 30 years. And you'll generate more than enough wealth and and um, and freedom for the normal person, right? Not everyone wants to become a billionaire. If you want to live a normal life, earn a couple of hundred thousand dollars a year, go on a nice holiday or two every year, and have your kids go to good schools, like that's the best way to get there, for sure. Now you know. And now you know, my good friend. Let's what do you go. think? That's good. That's very good.